You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 515 of this podcast. Today is December 12th, 2022, and it is a Monday morning, bright and early, or I should say dark and early. It is that early that I am recording this. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about year zero. What all was going on year zero when we switched in our calendar here in the West from BC to AD. We're going to be talking about that since Christmas is coming up, the time of the year that we celebrate and remember that Christ was born in Bethlehem, that God took on flesh and became one of us. But before we get into year zero and talking about the historical context a little bit, like we will be over the next while, I am going to run through a few links that I came across and also talk about the definition of partisan. What is partisanship and what does it mean then, therefore, by extension, to be bipartisan? We'll get into that. <clears throat> but first, starting us off, because you got to start somewhere, <laughs> just like year zero, uh, although it, there is no actual year zero, it's uh, 1 AD right after 1 BC. Nevertheless, I was sent a link by my friend and compatriot, Joseph Crampton. And the link is to rootersinstitute.politics.arcs.ac.uk. Do you think they could fit any more dots in there? This is a collaborative effort from the Reuters Institute and the University of Oxford Looking at, in this particular report, news and the consumption of news and trends in the news, they do this every year, and they have been for several years, but they take a look at how do people respond when you ask them questions about news coverage. Also, what is the trend when it comes to print news, so a actual physical newspaper that's going to be dropped off on your front porch or thrown in your front yard or thrown just any old place on your property, as seems to be the case uh, sometimes when we get uh, newspapers delivered to our house here in Greeley. They just end up in all manner of places. Hey, there's one on the car and there's one in the gutter and then there's one over here in the flower pot. And Here's one that didn't even make it off of the sidewalk. Uh, somebody needs to work on developing some arm strength, maybe. What is the trend in print news? Do you have people reading more print news, less print news over time? Also, how many people get their news from watching TV? How many people get their news from the internet? Going to more traditional corporate media websites, and then navigating how many people get their news from social media, et cetera, et cetera. Also too, and this is where we're going to key in, what is the overall trust in news? And they look at this year over year because they're curious, terribly, terribly curious. 
is the trend going up or down? Or what do people respond like when you ask them about where they get their news? And these are important questions to ask if you are a news agency or if you regard being informed or having an informed citizenry as important to the health and vitality of a society, of social relationships, interactions, also elections and democratic institutions, people making informed decisions about who they vote for or who they do not vote for, what measures they vote for, which measures they vote against. This report is for 2021. I don't think they have one for 2022 yet. So 2021 is the best we can do. But looking at some of their slides, they've got one. Overall trust in news is up, reversing recent declines. And they cite trust news overall statistics at 44%. And that's up six points. 44% trust news overall. Trust news in social media is 24%. So that's curious. There's a 20-point gap between trusting news overall, generally speaking, and trusting news on social media. The trust in news on social media is actually far lower than what I was expecting it to be. And keep in mind, too, when it comes to statistics, there's lots of ways to either make a mistake and come to the wrong conclusions based on statistics uh, or if you are manipulating <clears throat> statistics and you want to give certain impressions and uh, you know wag the dog as it were, you can you, you can manipulate statistics intentionally. You can do it accidentally and find yourself misled, or you can do it on purpose so as to try and direct people where you want them to go. But this study that. Reuters and Oxford do together yearly. In the 2021 instance, at least, they went around the world to all of these various countries and they asked 2,000 people in each country the same basic questions. And I would have expected personally that trust news in social media would be higher, but then I'm glad that it's not. <laughs> 24% is still too high given what we know about the ability and the willingness over time for major big tech outlets online to curate news in very agenda-driven, very partisan, there's that word, very partisan uh, ways to support certain agendas that they favor. They do that here in the U.S. They do that around the world. Google does it. Facebook does it. Also, Twitter, we are finding out more and more about how they do it. But in other news, proportion that trusts the news by country or region. This is also interesting. In Northern Europe, the highest is Finland at 65. The lowest is the UK at 36. Western Europe, the highest is the Netherlands at 59. The lowest is France at 30. I'd be curious to see what these numbers look like next year when we have the data for 2022, particularly given all of the business around farmers and the government of the Netherlands telling farmers, you have to cut 
your fertilizer use by X amount. You have to stop using such and such an amount. It's a, I mean, a very large amount of your land in order for us to keep up with climate change agreements, uh, the combating climate change agreements that we have uh, signed on to as a country. They're even talking about forcibly taking land from farmers to ensure compliance. Maybe the Netherlands does not have such high trust in media in the 2022 report. Uh, that would be my expectation, or at least that would be my hope. Uh, all of these countries in Western Europe facing energy austerity as a result of all of the business with Russia and Ukraine and Western Europe and Southern Europe to a lesser extent, Northern Europe to a lesser extent, being reliant on Russian energy, Russian oil and gas uh, for years. These people in Northern and Western and Southern Europe have been told by their media, you need to go along with this uh, EU plan and more and more globalism and let's normalize relations with everyone if at all possible. And that's how we'll have world peace. You don't want another World War II, do you? So therefore, trade is going to help us to normalize and that's an olive branch and it'll create a codependency. <laughs> that's my term, not theirs. That's not how they're advertising it, but that's what I would say is it'll create a codependency, which then will prevent both of you from breaking away and doing your own thing and then eventually having potentially conflict with each other. Well, so much for that, right? So much for that. They were sold a bill of goods and now it's cold and their energy uh, is throttled back. And that means less electricity, less heat if it's cold out and in the summer, less cooling when it's hot out. So we'll see what that does to their trust in the news. Southern Europe, Portugal, is the highest at 61, Greece the lowest at 32, Eastern Europe, Poland comes in at number one with 48, Hungary at 30. I note that Eastern Europe, the high is lower, uh, pretty significantly lower. And I don't think that's for no reason. I think that is uh, as a result of having lived in such close proximity and even under communist rule, Soviet rule for so many decades, they know Pravda, they know propaganda, they're familiar with it. And so even with the Iron Curtain having been lifted and a lot of these countries having democratized or modernized and gone away from communism, they, they know how to sniff out bias in media reporting even if it's not as uh, obvious, as glaring always as Pravda used to be. Uh, we in, in the West, in the United States, we might have so many more options. That doesn't mean that our media is less uh, propagandistic, particularly for the left and for progressives. But then moving to Africa, there's only actually three countries that are listed here, and that is curious to me. Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa – all have high trust relatively, in particular relative Eastern Europe, Kenya at 61, Nigeria at 54, South Africa at 52. And then you go into Asia Pacific region, Thailand at 50, Taiwan the lowest at 31. And this too is curious. I wonder how much of that low score for Taiwan has to do again with experience, not just theoretical knowledge of communism, but 
firsthand experience with communism. That's why a lot of Taiwan's, uh, you know, self-organization is what it is, is because you had the anti-communists fleeing the country if they could get out when Mao took over. And then they went to Taiwan and then they said, okay, we're going to govern ourselves over here. And is China okay with that? Of course, they're not okay with that. Do they want to take Taiwan and do their communist thing in Taiwan? Absolutely, they want to do that. Is one of the preliminary steps to try and infiltrate the media and the various institutions that are important so as to soften the people up to the idea of becoming communistic? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And we see that here in the U.S. as well with progressives and with the left and with Democrats. But then we go to Latin America. Brazil has a high of 54. That, I think, is in part why we see that Bolsonaro just recently lost. Elon Musk giving some credence to the idea that Twitter interfered with that election and helped, again, the leftist uh, who was a convicted criminal, very corrupt politician, helped the radical leftist to get reelected, even though he should be disqualified for life, I believe, constitutionally. Brazil, nevertheless, they have the highest trust in media. They trust the news the most uh, among various Latin American countries at 54%, and then Argentina has the lowest or is tied for the lowest with Chile at 36%, Mexico not far behind at 37%. There's fairly low trust in the news in Latin America. You get 40%, 40%, Colombia and Peru, and then 37 and 36%, as I said, with Mexico, Chile, and Argentina. And then you come to North America, and interestingly enough, the United States at 29%. It's uh, curious to me. Mexico is not included in uh, North America. Last I checked, Mexico is a North American country, but uh, okay. Canada at 45. It's just Canada in the U.S. Canada at 45% trust. I'm sure that's on the coasts and not <laughs> in the flyover country, as they call it, or drive your semi over country, uh, middle of the uh, country, Canada at 45, United States at 29%. Go figure. That's that's pretty interesting stuff, if you ask me. But that also means that you can put the United States at uh, the bottom here. Trust in media is lowest here in the U.S., at least according to this slide, looking at what the numbers are for these various regions on this particular slide, Hungary, also very low, 30%. The UK, uh, you know, a fair bit higher, 20% higher at 36%. France at 30%, not much higher. Taiwan at 31%, not much higher. But the United States at 29%, and not for no reason. Now, the very next slide, the very, very next slide is titled Misinformation and <laughs> then what follows is uh, a series of slides talking about misinformation, 
supposed misinformation, much higher levels in Africa and Latin America than in Europe. More people say they have seen misinformation about COVID-19 than about politics. 54% say they have seen misinformation about COVID-19. 43% they say they have seen misinformation about politics. 29% say they have seen misinformation about celebrities. 20% say they have seen misinformation about climate change. And, and here's what I would say to that. One, you don't always know when you're being misinformed. That's an important thing to just make a mental note of. Uh, and that goes both ways, right? Sometimes you might suppose you're being misinformed because you don't like the news and it does challenge your attitude or your preconceived notions. That's where you got to dig in and double check and see, does this actually match reality as near as I can tell? But then sometimes you think you're being properly informed and you are being misinformed. You, you are being led astray. It matches what your bias was but it's actually not true. It's not true. They were just telling you what you wanted to hear because that's what they want to believe as well as journalists or news outlets. It supports a certain favorite outcome or agenda. Now, the next slide here is politicians are seen as a big part of the problem. Hiring countries where COVID-19 has become highly politicized, such as Brazil, percentage that find each most concerning all markets so 29% most concerned about behavior of politicians, 16% most concerned about behavior of ordinary people. So not very many, right? Not very many. 15% most concerned about behavior of activists. So a slightly lower percentage, not, not much actually. Maybe that is to say a lot of folk uh, consider activists to be you know, pretty much ordinary people. 11% most concerned about behavior of journalists, and that's way too low. I would say you should be far more concerned about the behavior of journalists. 9% most concerned about behavior of foreign governments. So that the lowest yet is, hey, what if a spy or uh, you know a foreign intelligence agency tries to feed false news, fake news, uh, lies, essentially propaganda, to our media outlets, and then they just run with a story, right? A very small percentage, the smallest percentage is worried about that. And again, as with being concerned about the behavior of journalists, I would say this number is much too low based on what we are finding out increasingly with the Twitter files. So there you go. There, there you go. Some interesting trends and statistics concerning trust in media around the world. Speaking of, the fourth installment of the Twitter files is released as of this past weekend. The fourth installment released by Michael Schellenberger. And it would seem that there's a little bit of uh, a dampening effect here. It's an underwhelming drop. Uh, and also he has decided to go a tamer direction than some of the other journalists who have been helping to release the Twitter files. Matt Taibbi has had some real bombshells and he's been uh, much more bold. Michael Schellenberger, it seems, has been, maybe not been quite so bold. But Ryan Saavedra does some great reporting yesterday at the Daily Wire. And some highlights here, 
not to go too, too much into it because this is not our main topic. An interesting thing, Elon Musk did not seem overly thrilled by the release as he took six hours and seven minutes to promote it on his Twitter account, A Far Cry From. The other three releases, which he amplified after 10 minutes, part one, 50 minutes, part two, and 173 minutes, part three. So here in this batch, we see more about examples of pressure from major outside figures calling on Twitter to ban former President Donald Trump. Jack Dorsey was on vacation at the time, and I quote, Twitter's staff and senior execs were overwhelmingly progressive. That's not news. Schellenberger then noted tweets from former Twitter global lead of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, that were derogatory towards conservatives, which has been public knowledge for years and has previously been reported on. So that's not news. Now, could that be useful to remind? Yeah, it could be, but this might be a bit uh, uh, you know, underwhelming, let's say, that you, you tell us what we already know, right? Uh, give us some new information here. Also, too, something Schellenberger decided to do is omit the names of Twitter employees more so than Barry Weiss or Matt Taibbi had done in their release of documentation, screenshots, etc. More omission of Twitter employee names. On the one hand, you might make an argument for that and say, well, we don't want to expose them to danger and threats and violence even. We don't want to do that. We don't want to get them hurt. Uh, we just want to make it clear uh, what's going on here. But see, that's that's not actually the right call in my view you have specific named people who for years have been targeted very very publicly <laughs> if they are conservative and that was public knowledge and we actually do need to know the names of the people inside twitter who have been so egotistical so arrogant so dishonest so duplicitous and so damaging to the public discourse they have been on behalf of, in many instances, our government or persons in our government, in the FBI, if you want to consider the FBI our government, I think most people would define the FBI as part of our government, on behalf of partisans in the FBI, these Twitter employees have been censoring conservatives on behalf of the Democratic National Convention. These Twitter employees have been censoring conservatives on behalf of the Joe Biden team in the run-up to the 2020 election, these Twitter employees have been censoring conservatives for years. And insofar as they weren't just doing it quietly all the time, it wasn't all just blocking these conservatives, these commentators, private citizens sometimes, politicians other times. They weren't just blocking them only from being able to trend or people being able to search their content, like with Dan Bongino or with James Woods or with Dr. Bhattacharya, but they were also putting flags on their content and letting it be known that this or that account had been suspended or this tweet had been taken down because it supposedly violated community standards. Insofar as all of this created a certain dark impression of these conservative commentators or politicians or private citizens, 
in addition to removing their ability to speak freely or engage in the public discourse, there's a slanderous quality to what these Twitter employees were doing and saying, oh, I was just following orders. That's not acceptable. And to say, oh, I don't want these people to be harmed or damaged or threatened or blacklisted themselves if they try and get a job somewhere else or whatever, that just that that won't do. That's unacceptable. That is far too timid. And do better, please. Do better. One interesting new piece of information that was not previously known, uh, if you're familiar at all with Congressman Matt Gates from Florida, he at one time was uh, considered for being banned from Twitter because of what he was posting. I don't know precisely when that was. I can't, as I've said many times, I can't go and read through these Twitter files myself. And that's something to be remembered here is people like me are still banned. Elon Musk took a poll. He said, oh, should we give blanket amnesty for <clears throat> blanket amnesty for uh, people who have been suspended for frivolous reasons? Should we do that? And the result was overwhelmingly yes. But then I think what happened is they got a little bit of cold feet over there at Twitter, maybe Elon Musk as well, and they pumped the brakes on it because a lot of big corporations said, we're going to pull our advertising, or they did pull their advertising. And you had a lot of news outlets saying, ah, see, look at this very dangerous thing that's happening over at Twitter. Hate speech is coming back again, and this is unacceptable. And then Kanye West went off the deep end, and his stuff, just right at the same time, go figure, his content gets taken down. He gets suspended all right at the same time. He goes on Alex Jones's podcast and Tim Pool's podcast and makes a scene in both places. And I don't know. I don't know if those are contributing factors in my still not being able to get on Twitter, my still being suspended. My appeal from March of this year is still not answered. They, they haven't given me an answer to the very simple question that I asked. How does my tweet that you guys have flagged and suspended me for, how does it actually violate the rules? And I still have the screenshots, but keep that in mind. I still have the screenshots. I'm not making this up. They stated their reasons for suspending my account, and they have nothing whatsoever to do with the actual tweet in question or any of what I have posted to Twitter or any other social media account. There's no relation whatsoever. It was like they just picked a random one, a random community standard and said, ah, that'll do, right? And so there's a hubris, and and we do see this in the installments that I've seen the highlights from because I can't, again, I can't read them directly for myself. I have to rely on other people presenting this information. But we see this again and again with even the duly elected sitting president of the United States at the time, Donald Trump, that they would just look for an excuse. And this is of a piece, in my view, with the Constitution is a living document and it means whatever we want it to mean as times change and as we decide that now we want this and now we want that. We just write ourselves a blank check left and right, looking in penumbras, uh, unenumerated rights. You don't have to even have a <laughs> amendment to the Constitution passed. You could just 
make up some dumb thing about how, well, you know, this, this kind of implies that as well. No, it doesn't. You want that in there? Well, then go through the process. But, but now they don't go through the process. And the same was true at Twitter internally. It's the same mindset. It's the same attitude. It's the same way of relating to truth and justice and what is good and what is right. It doesn't have to make sense. They just have to be able to get away with it. And that is precisely why you can't leave anonymous the individual employees and figures and executives, characters who were doing this to conservatives. They damaged, they damaged conservatives, men, women, and yes, children, actually, not because children are on Twitter personally, firsthand, directly, but because there actually was quite a lot of exploitative content that was being shared on Twitter that involved human trafficking of, ch- human trafficking of children or the sexual exploitation of children. And Twitter wasn't taking that content down, going after those accounts and reporting them to law enforcement at anywhere near the rate they are now that Elon Musk is at the helm. And yet they were using all these tools that had been developed supposedly to go after folks like human traffickers and uh, you know pedophiles. They, they were using all of those tools to go after conservatives. And, and just think for a moment about what a smear on the reputation and the ability to function in society that translates to for folks like me who, you know, if we dared to speak up anyways, knowing that there was a profound bias and that we might get a whole lot of hate for it, uh, you know, we spoke up anyways and we took our lumps and we did the right thing and said the right thing. And where's the justice? Where Where's the justice? And this is to say nothing of all of the many, many, many more folks who quietly offline will say the exact same things and much stronger, but they would never dare waste their time or bring such trouble on themselves to say it online because they know what the result would be. So this has been an open secret. Now we're starting to get the receipts. Sorry, Michael Schellenberger, you, you got to do better. You other journalists out there who are covering this, you got to do better. Because this actually did damage people like me. And it, it really damaged all of us insofar as this has become the status quo. And this has just become whatever. And the left makes all these excuses, but this is tyrannical. And this is where it starts. Is it starts with silencing individuals in their ability to speak online. Because you can. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could do the thing that they never stopped to question whether they should. So the left censors conservatives like me online. And then what happens in real life if that's not enough? At a certain point, this is a very, very dark road, which we've seen repressive totalitarian regimes go down again and again in the 20th century, in the modern era, as governments have become even more and more secular and godless in the West, thinking that by so doing, they would be ever more scientific and progressive and prosperous. We've seen this again and again, that where it can go is violence and the elimination 
like the material elimination, not just, you know, silencing and censoring speech, but the material elimination of whole groups of people because they pose a threat to the totalitarian regime. And it's that on the one hand, or on the other hand, you identify the bad actors who have behaved badly so that there can be an appropriate due process and just response and accountability. It's very, very much needed. Speaking of accountability, Elon Musk takes aim at Dr. Fauci in cryptic wee hours tweet. Here's a bit of reporting from Greg Wilson over at the Daily Wire. He he didn't say a whole lot. Uh, He just says, my pronouns are prosecute and Fauci. Uh, Very, very funny. Musk tweeted this 3.58 a.m. I don't know what time zone that was. But this was an hour after another tweet warning that things were about to get spicy so far. And I quote Greg Wilson's reporting here so far. The Twitter revelations delivered in three tweet threads by journalists Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and Michael Schellenberger have mostly focused on Twitter's decision to stifle the bombshell Hunter Biden laptop story just days before the 2020 election and its move to ban former President Donald Trump from the platform. Musk's latest tweets could suggest damning information might soon be revealed about Fauci, the government virologist who set COVID policies, including school lockdowns, economic shutdowns, and mask and vaccine mandates under two administrations. This could be really big stuff, particularly particularly where the U.S. was on point and Fauci was the tip of the spear when it came to spreading the idea that this was bat soup, that it wasn't China, it wasn't a bioweapon at worst, or an experiment gone wrong at best. And increasingly, that is exactly what it adds up to being. Folks like me said that very, very early on. This is way too conspicuous. It's way too convenient. This is not a coincidence. And then, of course, we got we got censored online uh, in a very unusual way. It's like, well, why would that be so? What does that have to do with public health? You know, does this endanger my fellow citizens? Well, the propaganda at the time was, well, yes, it does, because Asian Americans are getting attacked because they look Chinese. And the, and the Trump administration is calling this uh, the Kung Flu, which was very funny, by the way. Uh, they're calling this the Kung Flu, and therefore, all Asians are getting attacked by racist Christian nationalists, MAGA extremists, et cetera, et cetera. It was nonsense. It was nonsense from the beginning. And increasingly, if you follow the paper trail, check the receipts that we already have, not even whatever Twitter is about to release next, potentially about Fauci. It looked very, very early on like the CCP and the DNC with Fauci being the middleman cooked up this virus in a lab in Wuhan, released it on the world to stop the rise of populism, to stop the pushback against globalism, in part because the move towards globalism 
is playing increasingly ever more and more into the hands of China. China is bent on global domination. They certainly want to dominate their own people, but they are not colonizing other countries around the world through their Belt and Road Initiative, their New Silk Road initiatives. They are not colonizing the world for no reason. They're not investing so heavily in Africa and South America and the Middle East for no reason. They're doing these things, opening up police stations in Canada and Europe and the US. They are doing these things because they are trying to take over the world. And look at Mao. This is what I said early on. Look at Mao and what he was willing to do with the Great Leap Forward, starving 100 million of his own people to death. So as to trade China's food supply to other countries for either weapons or technology or just prestige points, just to make China seem more prosperous than it really was. If Mao was the progenitor for the Chinese Communist Party and he was willing to do that in the interest of advancing the supposed greater good for the Chinese people and for the world, well then, what do you suppose Xi Jinping and the current Chinese Communist Party is willing to do? Well, I think release COVID. I think they are willing to destroy the lives of however many people around the world it takes so as to come out on top. And Fauci, Fauci was instrumental to that, not just helping to make it happen on the front end, but also helping to cover it up, and also helping to weaken and suppress and uh, go after any voices of dissidents, not just, not just Fauci, also Francis Collins, but there too. Francis Collins, this is the biggest scandal in American evangelicalism, not that so many evangelicals, I think 80 plus percent voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 and would again in 2024 if he's the candidate. The biggest scandal in American evangelicalism is that Big Eva characters, a lot of them, trotted out Francis Collins, Fauci's boss, to do a propaganda tour through not just their churches that they themselves pastored, but by extension, all of the other pastors of smaller churches across the country who look to them and respect them. Again and again and again, we saw major figures in Big Eva here in the United States trotting out Francis Collins to do a propaganda tour and to say, like the churchianity version of what Twitter's been doing in social media, to say if a Christian even just questions the mandates, the lockdowns, questions the so-called settled science here, well, then they have damaged their testimony. They're not being a very good Christian. They need to be reminded of Romans 13. And only the parts of Romans 13 that amount to obey me, do what I say. Right? So so this is a, this is a big, big deal. It's a very, very big deal. And I would say this is why Christians can't just opt out of politics because politics are intensely interested in Christianity. Or I should say, the folks who want to institute and cement a totalitarian communist globalist future, 
have to do something about Christians in America, and they have been. And insofar as they're using scripture, they're twisting scripture in many cases to try and do something about us, to either neutralize us, if that's the best that can be hoped for, or to hijack our convictions and harness our energies and our interests and enlist us in their work, their cultural revolution. They are corrupting our expression of Christian faith and devotion. They are corrupting and hijacking and manipulating for their own selfish gain the scriptures and church polity. And so this this absolutely, it needs to be a name the names and show the receipts all the way across the board. There's got to be a house cleaning. There, there just has to be. And Christians have to be very interested in what that looks like, not because we're forgetting that our true home is in the next life or in the new heavens and the new earth, but because we have a view towards eternity and Christ being king over all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof because we have a mandate to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because we have that mandate, we've got to think through the implications of God's word, of his commands, his promises, his character, which is unchanging. See, this is the big thing that gets twisted when you have this pushback against conservative theology, conservative politics, conservative ideology, if I can say that, among more liberal Christians or more third-way Christians or more middle-of-the-road Christians, when there's a maligning of conservative theology and politics among Christians— because oh you're just you're you're getting too wrapped up in things. Don't be so attached to things, as Ivan says in Iron Man Two. <laughs> What's forgotten is God's character doesn't change, so therefore we can't be making new claims with reckless abandon about what God is for or what He endorses or affirms or desires morally. And yet that's precisely what the progressives do again and again and again. So, for instance, there's some reporting from The Blaze. Joseph McKinnon, December 10th, federal court blocks Biden administration from forcing Christian doctors to perform transsexual mutilation surgeries. Is this a political issue? Tell me that. Is this a political issue? Is it a healthcare issue? Is this a philosophical issue? Is this a theological issue? Is this a gospel witness and testimony issue? Is it consequential to our Christian faith in our view that a Christian doctor in your church, potentially a Christian surgeon in your church, potentially might be forced on pain of losing their medical license, being fined, being jailed, being hauled into court, being harassed, pilloried in the media? Is it relevant to your Christian faith, or is it just politics, that the Biden administration is trying to, whether they succeed or they don't, they're trying to make it to where 
Christian physicians will, must, or else be purged, or else be driven out of their livelihood. Learn to code, I suppose. That's what they'll be told. And then the coders, the programmers, will be told, well, you have to program accordingly to promote transsexual mutilation surgeries. I'm sorry, gender reassignment. Gender reassignment. See, this is not a political issue that Christians can be neutral on. And it's also not a question on which there's no discernible difference between conservatives and progressives or between Democrats and Republicans. Actually, and, and I know this is where the folks who want to say, well, they're all the same. They're all, they're all the same to me. I, don't, I can't tell a difference. They're all corrupt. You know What they'll point to is they'll point to things like the so-called opposite world Newspeak termed Defense of Marriage Act or Respect for Marriage Act, and they'll point to Republicans voting for that. Not the most Republicans, but increasingly, an increasing number of Republicans voting for these kinds of things. And they'll point to those kinds of issues and they'll say, ah, what's that? Right? What were you saying about there being a difference between Republicans and Democrats? There's Republicans like Mitt Romney who are voting for the Respect for Marriage Act. There are Republicans, like certain state governors, who will veto legislation aimed at stemming the tide of basically brainwashing. I'm sorry, not sorry. Brainwashing children, school-aged children, into wanting to be transgendered. In an abomination to God pursuit You will have Republican governors, Republican lawmakers in some states say, well, I'm sorry. I I just think this isn't the role of government. It's not the proper role of government for us to tell schools and parents that that's bad, that they can't do that. These are not, these are not political issues. First and foremost, these are theological issues first and foremost, and then downstream of them being theological issues they're anthropological issues, they're philosophical issues, they are cultural issues, then they're on the ballot. If we paint ourselves into a corner and we accept that our Christian faith has to be private, well, we have to that extent deprived the public of the salt. And what's the difference between that and the salt losing its savor? Tell me that. On a happier note, we will move on here. A man in Australia just returned a book to a school library that his grandfather checked out 120 years ago. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens was in 1903 checked out from the Toowoomba Grammar School Library in Queensland, Australia by a certain Arthur Lamb. December 2022, his grandson John Lamb returned the book to the library only 120 years after it was first checked out. I'm terribly curious if (laughs) the fines (laughs) were waived. I, I would suppose so. They were probably waived. But kudos to this guy, right? I mean, kudos. Returning that book, hey, your grandpa should have returned it. Uh, let's say maybe 118 years ago at most, but good for you. Good for you 
returning it better late than never, doing the honorable thing. 120 years, that's a long, long time. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the larger scope of history, it's really not, though. It's really not. 120 years, it's a very, very brief span. Now, let's talk about, with that moment of levity behind us, let's talk about what the definition of partisan is. From Oxford languages, the origin of the term is mid-16th century from French via Italian dialect, from Italian partigiano, from parte, part from Latin pars, a strong supporter of a party, cause, or person, a member of an armed group formed to fight secretly against an occupying force, in particular one operating in enemy-occupied Yugoslavia, Italy, and parts of Eastern Europe in World War II. Those are the noun definitions. So think either a supporter, follower, adherent, devotee, champion, backer. You know, those are some synonyms to the first definition. And then the second would be like a guerrilla or a freedom fighter, a resistance fighter. When it's used as an adjective, it means prejudiced in favor of a particular cause. So think biased, prejudiced, one-sided, colored, discriminatory, preferential. Now that we've defined our term, what does it mean morally, theologically, socially to be a partisan? Is it a bad thing to be a partisan? Should you Stop whatever you're doing, stop whatever you're saying, stop whatever line of argumentation you are pursuing, developing, if someone says, that just seems very partisan. I would say, no, that's silly. (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I would just say, no, no. The beginning of James talks about If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. And the or else that is presented by James is that if you doubt, if you ask God, but you're not actually believing that God will give you wisdom, you're going to be a double-minded man. And what does that mean to be double-minded? Well, it means that you think all these contradictory things all at the same time, and where do you go with it? Ships have rudders for a reason, and that reason is so that you can actually steer the ship to actually get to a favored destination or avoid crashing into the rocks, sinking your ship. You can avoid a storm with a rudder, or you can come into port to make trade, to settle a new world, to explore, to wage war, yes. But if you have no rudder, and you're just drifting, uh, you're going to end up wherever. And it's going to be very random. And there's no guarantee whatsoever that it's going to be profitable or safe or successful. And partisanship, generally speaking, is neutral. To be partisan is neutral. The devil is in the details on what party And yes, it can be right for you to support a party if that party's character and principles are in alignment or at least closer alignment with with what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. 
because there are disagreements about what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And either everybody's equally wrong, which that might be convenient if you don't want to pick a side to say everybody's equally wrong, either everybody's equally wrong or some are more correct, even if they're not completely correct, they're more correct than others. And when that's the case, when some are more correct than others, and all the more, if they could be corrected to be even in closer alignment with what is good and what is true, then isn't that where you should join? In a certain respect, you could say that to be a Christian is partisan because you are a strong supporter, and that might be to some people's ears offensive to say, you're a strong supporter of Christ. But one of the synonyms here is follower, adherent, devotee. Are we not followers of Christ? Yes, we are. Are we not adherents to his word? Yes, we are. Are we not devoted to his precepts and his commands and his promises? Yes, we must be. And if we're not, then we're not Christians. But then if we are Christians, then we are followers, adherents, devotees. And therefore, in a certain sense, in a certain respect, we are partisan. If you say, well, I just don't like anything that's partisan because I just want to, I, I don't want the conflict. I don't want the strife. Well, there's just, there's no getting around having conflict. There's no getting around having an at odds except for death. I suppose in the grave, we don't have beef with anybody, but we are promised conflict in this life, in the life to come or in the in-between if we sleep or if we meet him in the air, sure, you'll be free and that'll be great. And I'm looking forward to it right now. There's no getting around it. There must be, there is, there will be conflict. So then the question is not, can conflict be avoided? It can't, but how best do we engage in the conflict and when and where and why and about what? It is not a bad thing to be partisan. I would actually say bipartisanship typically is a euphemism for abandoning one's principles. If they don't have the support for their legislation and you don't agree with it, don't vote for it. If nothing happens, well then fine. That's okay for the government to just not do anything on this issue because you guys couldn't come to a consensus. Now, if there are certain things that are not a violation of your principles, great. But you have to actually have principles in order for them to be violatable. If you don't have principles, well, then I suppose it makes sense that they couldn't violate your principles for you to compromise, reach across the aisle. If reaching across the aisle is just two pragmatists doing whatever's going to get them elected again, whatever makes for the better photo op, whatever according to polling and the news media coverage is likely to make them the most money, win them the most favor, well then you are unprincipled. That is unscrupulous and we're in trouble. Moving on, last but not least, we're going to talk a little bit about year zero. And did you know that a year zero does not exist? In the Anno Domini calendar system, AD calendar system, commonly used to number years in the Gregorian calendar, or in its predecessor, the Julian calendar, 
This per Wikipedia in its article on year zero. In this system, that is the Anno Domini calendar system, the year 1 BC is followed directly by year AD 1. However, there is a year zero in both the astronomical year numbering system, where it coincides with the Julian year 1 BC, and the ISO 8601-2004 system, the interchange standard for all calendar numbering systems where year zero coincides with the Gregorian year 1 BC, see conversion table. There is also a year zero in most Buddhist and Hindu calendars. Well, believe for them. The Anno Domini era was introduced in 525 by Scythian monk Dionysius Exiguus, 470 to 544 circa, who used it to identify the year's on his Easter table. He introduced the new era to avoid using the Diocletian era based on the accession of Roman Emperor Diocletian as he did not wish to continue the memory of a persecutor of Christians. In the preface to his Easter table, Dionysius stated that the present year was the consulship of Probus Junior Flavius Anicius Probus Junior, which was also 525 years since the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. How he arrived at that number is unknown. Dionysius Exiguus did not use AD years to date any historical event. This practice began with the English cleric Bede, 672 to 735, who used AD years in his Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, 731, popularizing the era. Bede also used only once a term similar to the modern English term before Christ, though the practice did not catch on for nearly a thousand years when books by Dionysius Batavius treating calendar science gained popularity. Bede did not sequentially number days of the month, weeks of the year, or months of the year. However, he did number many of the days of the week using the counting origin one in ecclesiastical Latin. Now here, here again, I'm going to talk just a little bit, just a little, little bit about how big of a deal it is that Christ came into the world at a certain point, at a certain time, and can we avoid talking politics in relation to the context, the historical context? No, we can't. Even when it comes to talking about year zero, there's no getting around the political ramifications of using the former calendar system for the Scythian monk 1,500 years ago. Yes, there are ecclesiological implications, there are theological implications to changing up your whole calendar for these reasons, because Diocletian persecuted the church, but there are also political realities that went into why Diocletian did this. It wasn't either or. That's what I'm saying is it's not now, it has never been an either or that people have religious beliefs, religious practices, religious observances, theological positions, philosophical pursuits, social institutions, cultural artifacts, or political pursuits. Think of Herod hearing that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem or had been born in Bethlehem, then sending soldiers to murder, straight up murder, 
every baby boy two years old and younger. That was not just a spiritual decision. It was not just an emotional decision. That wasn't just a mental calculation, rationally or irrationally, fearful of a king displacing him in Palestine. That was a political move. And it has to be, on some level, treated as such then. When we look at the nativity story, it has to be regarded in its type as relevant to a lot of our conversations in this day. Also, too, it's interesting to me that there is no year zero. There's BC, there's AD. There's one BC, there's one AD, because history is divided. Jesus says at one point, do not think that I came to bring peace. No, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I will set the members of a man's own household against one another. Why? Because Jesus said things like, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, because he purported to be the son of God, which was very much a dividing line for people who were expecting a Messiah, but not one who was going to ruffle their feathers or upset them or offend their sensibilities or confront them publicly, potentially embarrassing them in front of people who up to that point had kowtowed, feared them. So we have this year zero that divides history itself, all of human history, in two. And no, this isn't the only calendar, but that's not the point. Because how much sense would it make to say, well, all calendars are viable as long as you know to live in the present? No, no, no. We, we work off of this calendar, and how confusing would it be if we started throwing in everyone else's calendars, the Mayan calendar, the Buddhist calendar, the everything, and just everybody uses their own dates for things. It's all subjective. At a certain point, you have to say, no, this is what it is. This is what we're going to sync up on. And if you're really not okay with it, you really don't want to do that, why? And I, I don't know that the burden of proof really is on the folks who say it's a good idea. It's, it's self-evidently a good idea to do so, to pick a standard that accords with reality as holistically and comprehensively as you can, but also as simply as you can. I think the burden of proof might be on those who would say, it's all the same. It's all the same. Who was censoring behind the scenes? It's all the same. Where you get your news? It's all the same. What Fauci knew, when he knew it, and it's all the same. What the big Eva figures felt, believed, even as they went along with the maligning of the reputation, the character, the standing of their Christian brothers and sisters across the U.S., and around the world for that matter. It's not all the same if Joe Biden's administration wants to force Christian doctors to perform gender reassignment surgeries. It's not all the same. Sometimes we just have to pick a side and say, this is what I'm for and that's what I'm against. It is not all the same. But I got to run. Speaking of not all the same and speaking of time, I got to get to work. So as always, Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.